I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye. I'm a personal trainer and author of the book of the same name, Train Happy. This podcast is a chance to dive deeper into the themes discussed within the book, as well as discussing our relationship with fitness, food, body image, and mental health. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love to hear from you. You can use the hashtag trainhappypodcast or you can tag me on Instagram or social media at Tally Rye and using the hashtag trainhappypodcast. This week's episode was with Laura Thomas. Um, She is a friend, but has also been a bit of a mentor to me. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I think we covered a lot um, talking about intuitive eating, as well as um, the differences and the social justice elements of intuitive eating and intuitive movement as well. So I hope you enjoy this one. I'm so happy to say that today's sponsor is Manny Life Peanut Butter. They have quickly become my favorite peanut butter. They do a deep roast, smooth peanut butter that is unbelievable. I often have pancakes for breakfast. I know I'm self-employed. That's one of the perks of being self-employed. <laughs> but I make pancakes for breakfast and I often drizzle their peanut butter on top. And I also love it on bagels with um, banana on top as well as cinnamon and honey. It's simply the best. Manny Life are awesome because they source the finest peanuts from one family-run farm in Argentina. They then roast the beautiful nuts to perfection and then they blend them all together in small batches so that creates the extra creamy texture which I have never quite tasted in any other peanut butters and trust me I've become a bit of a connoisseur these days. You can find more about Manny Life on their website which is mannylife.com or manny-life.com and you can find them in selected supermarkets and stores near you. I highly recommend getting the deep roasted smooth peanut butter to start with and then go crazy and try all the different variations. Thank you so much to Manny Life for sponsoring this episode. Today I am joined by a registered nutritionist, owner of the London Centre for Intuitive Eating and author of Just Eat It, we have Laura Thomas. Hey, good to see you. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me and just, you know, letting us have this conversation. If you haven't read Train Happy, Laura wrote a fantastic piece in there for us about why diets don't work. Um, and in the book, we also discuss intuitive eating. So you were the perfect person to have on, to have this bit of a deeper dive into those topics. I'm telling, no pressure. I know, <laughs> well, I just thought it'd be a great opportunity um, to pick your brain, to um, you know, discuss some of the issues and the questions that people may have reading. Um, I'm sure with your book, people had a lot of questions, and I have a feeling um, that may happen too. So I wanted to talk to you um, about those things. So let's start with um, how you kind of uh, label yourself, should we say? So we've got terms such as. Um, anti-diet, fat positive, um, haze aligned, 
kind of nutritionists and personal trainers like myself. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if this is new information to you, these words feel quite intimidating. Mm. Um, they feel a bit um, out there. I like for me, it was almost like a little t t took a little time to even say them myself and say that you know I'm this, I'm that, and so. Let's discuss what those words mean and, and why you choose to use them. Um, so let's start with um, anti-diet, anti because that's the kind of, the I call it the buzzword at the moment. Yeah, and, and I suppose I'm not sure that I necessarily label myself that way, but some people might, and, and I, I guess if pushed about it, I would say, yeah, okay, um, I'm, I'm anti-diet. Uh, and you're right, I think that is a fairly intimidating term for people to come across. Um, and, and so essentially what, it, what it's referring to is not being anti-people who are on diets or people who want to pursue weight loss. And we can we'll talk, I'm sure, about why um, that's not always the best idea for people sometimes um, in just a second. But... What anti-diet is referring to is anti-diet culture or anti the intentional pursuit of weight loss because we know that it can be damaging for people. Um, and it tends to be the default uh, medical recommendation, health recommendation, um, and we know that it's not always po possible for people. So it can get, it can cause people to get stuck in the diet cycle um, where they're kind of jumping on and off the dieting bandwagon which might have implications for both their physical and their mental health. So when we are saying we're anti-diet, we don't necessarily mean that we are um, anti-health, although that's a slightly nuanced conversation as well. <laughs> um, but, but you know, as a, if an anti-diet nutritionist or dietitian, um, what we might do is help people manage their health conditions or understand their health conditions through a non-weight-focused lens. So we're taking the pressure off of weight and helping them improve health through other avenues, if that's what they, they want to do or choose to do. Yeah, I always found the term anti-diet um, quite confronting and a bit... Um, I always, uh, you know, I felt like if you're anti-something, it feels like you're against it. And sometimes I wanted to say what I was for rather than what I was against mm -hmm. um, in a positive way, which is why I always said um, I I choose to be, um, I, I say like a health first personal trainer in the sense that I'm going to think about your um, mental and physical health as my mm -hmm. priority um, rather than, as you said, that weight focus. Yeah. Um but I absolutely would say that I am. I support the anti-diet movement, and mm -hmm. I I totally support it. Um, I think for people who perhaps are dieting right now or still are contemplating that option, it feels like an attack. Sometimes it can feel scary, sure. but as you said, it, it isn't. Yeah. It, it it is just a term. It's about um, not promoting dieting and instead um, focusing on your overall well-being. Yeah, and so. I would tend to use the words body inclusive when it comes to um, describing my professional mm. label. I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and all that means really is that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that there's something wrong with your body or you need to shrink your body. I'm helping you work with your body rather than against it. Um, 
but yes, to speak to this point around sort of, I, I think there's a real sentiment at the moment that the anti-diet movement is shaming or judging people. And I just want to say for the record, I mean, I've said it before, <laughs> I'm sure I'll have to say it again, but it's not really about individuals. Um, it's about acknowledging that um, diet culture is a system of oppression. We're just gonna go there. Get that. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's an, an extension of a, um, a, a power structure that aims to keep certain marginalized people down, um, notably uh, fat bodies, but, but other intersecting identities as well. Um, and, and so, you know, you'll read how, how diet culture is essentially a, an extension of a white supremacist patriarchal system of oppression to, you, to throw around a lot of big words. Um, and, and so really what we're rallying against is um, the ways that diet culture harm people and keep people down. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it does feel intimidating. And if you're new to this work, I get you because <laughs> I felt so... It, it's taken me, like, little by little, step by step, to kind of dig deeper into this work and understand, you know, its origins and, and where it comes from. So let's talk about the term fat positive. Mm -hmm. um, because... That kind of relates to that, uh, how you mentioned that diet culture is a form of oppression, um, mm -hmm. particularly to those in bigger bodies. Um, so let's talk about what it means to be fat positive. Yeah, so again, um, I was actually listening to a really wonderful conversation on Fiona Sutherland's podcast the other day. Um, and one thing that stood out to me was that really as um, a Health at Every Size aligned practitioner, it's That's not, another one we're going to I know, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Side note. Um, but, yeah, as, as someone who's haze-aligned, it, it's not really up to me to label myself as fat positive. It's really up to the marginalized group that I'm trying to ally myself with to decide whether or not I'm fat positive and I kind of meet that standard. Um, you know... I would love to think that I am fat positive, but ultimately um, I, I sort of have to do well by those people that I'm trying to serve in order to sort of earn that title, as it were. So again, I would try and, and, and align myself as being body inclusive um, and, and I'm constantly working in, on my understanding of that and evolving that. So I suppose come think if we think about the, the traditional dominant nutrition dogma is that um, fat is bad, fat is unhealthy, fat is unworthy. If you're fat, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to exist or take up space. Um, and so essentially, if you're fat positive, I think you're, you know, you're rejecting that dogma, but also working to uplift um, fat bodies who have been marginalized again through the sort of we'll use nutrition as, as an example because I'm a nutritionist but through the sort of nutrition and medical establishment where people have um, yeah further mar marginalized fat bodies so to be fat positive is to to reject that and say actually no we need to be um, doing what we can to bring these people to, to lift them up rather than to keep oppressing them absolutely and I think like this does feel overwhelming and like I said, if this is new information, 
take your time with it, sit with it, um, read, listen to Laura's podcast, um, because it takes a lot to kind of um, comprehend. Um, I'd say the biggest education, as you said, is listening to those voices that have been marginalised for so long, Absolutely. and they're the best people to learn from. Um, as an example, I think your fat friend, who is um, on Amazing. Instagram and Twitter, and writes essays and great pieces, is so informative and clear um, in in their opinion. And so I think we, we need to listen to those conversations, and, I, and even just by following their account and the stories they share on Instagram stories, as an example, mm -hmm. of just other people's lived experience is so powerful, and it really gets you... Um, gives you a kind of sense of this work and how it applies, I think, to real life as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to say that, um, you know, I can't speak to the fat experience and I wouldn't want to take up that space. So I would definitely signpost to someone like your fat friend. Um, something that I found really interesting is she'll occasionally do a Twitter thread asking people about their experiences um, of accessing medical care in, in particular um, and all of the ways that people have been, and, and I suppose this just highlights the, the marginalization and oppression we were talking about, just to give examples of the way that people have been, you know, gone to their doctor because they have X, Y, and Z symptoms and have just been told to lose weight when it turns out that they have cancer or something, you know, equally devastating. Um, and so it just goes to show that every health concern, more or less, um, people in, in bigger bodies experience is often just chalked up to their weight. So that's a really nice, clear example of, um, of, of medicalized fat phobia, so a form of, of marginalization that we were talking about. For me, fat phobia is the, um, the hatred and the oppression of fat bodies and all that is synonymous with that in, you know, coming at it from that diet culture perspective. Um, and I understand weight stigma to, to be how that's manifested in more of a medical field, in perhaps in research, and that would be more of the terminology used in yeah. that, that kind of academic setting. Yeah. Um, but they are very linked. Yeah, and... Um Again, not wanting to, to speak to the lived experience of this, I can speak certainly from an academic perspective and, and from the experiences that a lot of my clients have shared with me. Um, but Charlotte Cooper, who is another rad fatty, uh, would say that weight stigma is, is a politification of the term fat phobia. So mm -hmm. it's essentially the same thing, but we've made it palatable and digestible and not so confronting. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what Charlotte Cooper would say, and I, I have to say I think I agree with her. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think fat phobia could be um, manifested in, in a lot of different ways. So it could be very overt uh, harassment and prejudice kind of lobbied at an individual. But we also see it um, as being very institutionalized. So. For example, oh god, so something that we talk about in our trainings is, is weight stigma levied at children. So, or fat phobia levied at children. And yeah, I saw your face there because it's, it's horrifying, but, but children, did you know that weight-based bullying and teasing was one of the highest forms of, 
of bullying in schools. So more so than any other, um, I mean, it's all horrible, don't get me wrong, but it, it's the most else. common, yeah. I think form because of, something that's a parents-based. Yes, it's easy like to target. easy target, and I sadly am not surprised. Yeah. Which is sad because I get the brain of children in the sense that when I was a kid, what you saw is, if, if something looked different to you, it felt like you could, it was a, it was a target. Yeah, so a really important reminder to talk, for any parents listening, to talk to their kids about how diversity and difference between people is really normal. Because here's the kicker with the, the weight-based bullying and teasing thing. So for every incident of bullying and teasing that was related to weight that a child encountered, they were 5% less likely to attend school. Yeah. So can you imagine how that accumulates over time? Mm. If every if every time you were bullied based on your weight, the chance of you going to school reduced by 5% and then another 5% and then another 5%. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that always sticks in my mind is this statistic that kids who are bullied because of their weight are twice as likely to commit suicide. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's it's horrible. So when I know we were throwing around marginalization and oppression before, that that's you know the the manifestation of it. That's the those are the consequences of it, or the way that it um, materializes. Yeah, um, but it's not just in children. It's through oh, yeah. education, employment. Um, you know, it, it shows up in all sorts of different mm. walks of life. Um, somebody who's really great to, to do a bit more reading around this is um, Sophie Hagen and reading yes. her book, Happy Fat. It's fantastic. Yes. And I remember her saying um, on a panel once that she did, she used some research and it was, I'm going to try and say this correctly, mm -hmm. that there was a, um, I think it was a survey done or some sort of research done on students, I believe, and they were asked, would you rather be blind or would you rather yeah. be fat for the rest of your life? And the majority of people chose to be blind yeah. because they felt that um, being fat was the worst thing. Yeah, it's it's pretty startling. It's pretty horrifying. It's just, it's, yeah, it's very, it, it's, it's hard. so deeply entrenched and mm -hmm. when... And when we, you know, if we kind of go back to where, what we started talking about, which was this idea that, um, you know, I guess in some ways it's it's really understandable why people want to try and control their weight and try and control their body size um, through dieting and manipulating their bodies in other ways. Because the, the reality is that we treat fat people in our society really, really poorly, just, you know, in the same way that we're treating other marginalized groups really poorly. And so... We have a lot to do, especially if we consider ourselves to be allies to the, the, um, the, the well, just social justice movements in, in general. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, in Train Happy, you gave a really great overview of why diets don't work. Um, we get, like I said, it was an overview, and um, there's a lot of uh, information and science behind this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought we could kind of get into it a little bit and um, discuss why diets are so unsuccessful, why we get stuck in that diet cycle, mm. and where the statistics of the 95% failure rate come from. <laughs> and is that accurate? And is it more? Is it less? Let's discuss. Okay. So I think 
it's helpful to talk about just the broader context here because I think oftentimes we assume based on what diet culture teaches us and, and you know how prevalent diets are and the way that they make them sound really easy and straightforward, it makes it seem as though diets are under our own control, right? Like we have total say over what size and shape our bodies are and if we just, you know, do this little calories in, calories out equation, we can kind of nail that, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what we know from the scientific literature and research is that there are over a hundred different variables that play into what someone's body weight and shape will be. Most of those are outside of our own individual control. So this is things like our socioeconomic status, our genetics and biology, our psychology to some extent, shapes our body shape and size. So these things are, are not things that we can readily change. So we have to kind of keep the, the bigger picture in mind here. Um, but then there, there is a lot going on in terms of our own individual biology as well. So um, what, what happens when, well, let's just kind of describe the, the diet cycle. I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with it. But if we start at the top, um, people are like excited. It's, it's January. They're going to start this new diet. They've heard about this new I don't know what it's like. There's a new app out, and I, I, I won't name it, but there's an app <sighs> I mean, that's no, a lifestyle, no. not a diet. But it's it's a diet. Yeah. And and that's the thing, we need to, be, we need to watch out because diet culture is sneaky and it just rebrands itself as not diet, but it's still diet. So um, you start this new diet, like maybe you're really excited about it, you join like the Facebook groups and you get the book and you, you know, you do all of the things and you might start off by kind of restricting a couple of food groups or the number of the total number of calories that you're you're doing or or, or eating I should say um, maybe it's macros maybe you just wiped out a whole food group and so you, st you start off by restricting your food in, in some way and then it kind of like if we imagine I'm imagining the little diagram in my, in my book um, so we get down to it all, all, what all of those things do is further ingrain what we call diet mentality. So you probably experienced this if you've ever been on a diet. It's the kind of um, bargaining and negotiating and back and forth that you have with yourself about good foods and bad foods. And um, you know, if I do this on a Monday morning, it means I can go out on a Friday night. And yeah. if I go do that workout, I can have this and that. That totally like saying to yourself, oh, I can make up for this or I can earn this this way. But also just like the guilt and the shame associated with eating particular foods or not meeting a target or overshooting a target or whatever it might be. And it's, it's interesting in clinic, one of the first things I get clients to do is to fill out this sort of brain template that we have. So we have this empty brain template. And I ask clients to say what proportion of their brain or their headspace is taken up by thoughts of food and diet and exercise and their body when they're doing a program like this. And some of them will tell me it's like 80, 90% sometimes, like it's a lot. So that's a diet mentality. And I think with every turn of the diet cycle that gets more and more deeply entrenched. So I've noticed with my clients who've been on diets for years and years and years that that stuff's just more deeply ingrained 
than if you've only kind of casually dabbled in diets. So there's that. And then what we might notice initially is a, a little bit of weight loss. So maybe a couple pounds here and there. Sometimes that's enough to kind of keep us going and get us excited. Um, and sometimes people don't notice any weight loss at all. So they double down on their, on their diet and they go harder. But then this is the point that our biology starts to kick in. And our bodies can't really perceive the difference between being in an energy deficit because we're on a, a diet versus an energy deficit because food is scarce or um, there's a shortage of food. You know, we're, we're mammals at the end of the day. So our reptilian brain kind of takes over and is like, okay, well, we need to get up off of our ass and go get some food. So it dials up your hunger signals. It dials up your cravings for specific foods. Um, and you, that you're kind of, your, your threshold is down or your tolerance is down and you're like, oh, there's a KFC on my way home. Or you've just had a stressful day, kind of a shitty day, and you're like, fuck it. Am I allowed to swear on yeah. the podcast? Okay, yeah. it's kind of my brand. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you're like, fuck it, and I'm just gonna order all the food. And you find yourself kind of, I would say, sort of feeling out of control around food. Um, like like food kind of owns you a little bit and um, I think at that point oftentimes people can blame themselves um, and, and say I've got no willpower, I'm weak, all, all of these, all, all the horrible things we tell ourselves. And they beat themselves up like why couldn't I stick to it, why did I have to do that, like yeah. it's my fault, I'm a terrible person, I messed up. But it's, it's actually because our bodies are sending out hormones and neurotransmitters that are, are sort of, in some ways, trying to tell us... Like that feed me. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of like evolutionary survival, mm -hmm. right? And, and the other thing that can happen if we um, are trying to restrict our calorie intake is not, not only does our appetite increase, but our um, metabolic rate decreases. Just a little bit, but enough that you, you would potentially notice a slow in weight loss or even your weight increasing back up. Um, your, your thyroid hormones go down, your fullness hormones go down, so it's harder for you to feel full uh, when you're restricting. I mean, it makes sense, right? When you think about it, it makes total sense. Um, and so that, you know, that's maybe the point that you break the diet and you put a little bit of weight back on and then you're back at the beginning Back, right back at square one and that cycle can play out over the space of a day over the space of a week you know that whole diet starts monday thing um or, or over a couple of months or sometimes even over a couple of years so the time frame might be slightly different for everyone but it's a very clear pattern it is and i think um i've seen commentary from people in the fitness industry who I think have had their feathers a bit ruffled from these people saying that, you know, diets don't work long term and they're not sustainable and... You're looking at me! <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, it wasn't... that I've heard people say all these people in the anti-diet movement um, just can't diet, they're just not very good and that's why they're mad and that's why they are saying that diets don't work. But guess what, Laura? If you do their plan, you'll be fine. Because oh, if you just do that, 
It's that's the answer. Of course. Well, if only science had figured that out before <laughs> they know. did. If only all the researchers still currently trying to find the most perfect form yeah. of magic bullet weight loss um, form of weight loss would just hang up their lab coat now. Yeah. Like your job's done. This per this person trying to figure it out. And and I think that's the thing that we have to remember when we're having these conversations is that this idea that the fact that that diets don't work and long term weight loss maintenance, to use the kind of scientific term, um, is very, very difficult, is not controversial in nutritional science. It's not. Like, ask anyone with a nutrition or dietetics degree, like, we'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> the thing, the thing, the disconnect is that we're, we're like, yeah, we know that diets are really hard and they don't work, but just try it anyway. Yeah, just try the healthy behaviours yeah. for weight loss. Yeah. Um, and as you said, it's kind of commonly known in the nutrition space that diets don't work. So we'll say that diets where you count points or you have sins or, um, you know, you're tracking shakes it might, or, they, yeah. they don't work. That's kind of where everyone, I think, is on, pretty much everyone's on the same um, place when we say, like, detox teas are fat diets. They don't work. Mm -hmm. But there is that great area where people can say, you know... Yeah, but even though we don't have a long-term, you know, a, a study um, or, you know, a group of studies, we don't have that um, wider body of evidence to say that there is a, a version with, uh, where we can sustain long-term weight loss. Mm -hmm. We're still saying that we can do weight management and we can encourage that. And I just personally don't get it. I don't get why we're still trying to, trying to push something when... Do we have a, a way? Do, is there, well, is there, is there I, evidence? I guess two things on that. First of all, there are some people who will be successful mm -hmm. dieting. Um, Fiona Willer talks about the statistical unicorns, those that small fraction of people who, who go on a diet and, and actually it does work and it doesn't necessarily come with the physical or the psychological downside that... Um, uh, for most people it does but what we don't know is if those people were above their starting their sorry their set point weight to begin with so that's you know that's research that we still kind of have to have more of a look at um i kind of have joking well there is one form of permanent weight loss that i could offer you that's evidence-based you want to go on? <laughs> Bariatric surgery. Yeah. So that is the really the only solution that, that we have that is kind of um, guaranteed to help people lose weight. And even then there's kind of, it's unclear how much weight and also there are massive, massive long-term complications. It's really not, you know, I, I say it half jokingly, but also it's a really, really serious thing. Um, it's... Um... Yeah, it's, and even then, do we know that those people could have the weight loss after surgery and in 10, 15, 20 years time maintain that? Do we know that? Um, I'm not sure what the specific evidence is around that, but my sort of understanding, and don't quote me on this, but my understanding is that oftentimes people will have quite a steep initial weight loss, but then over time they might end up putting at least some of the weight mm -hmm. back on. Yeah. And when we're 
we're talking about weight loss maintenance, because I read a blog post from a psychologist, I think it was, about this, um, talking about the evidence for weight loss maintenance, and I was really curious, because I was like, huh, this is really interesting, <laughs> and I clicked on it, and um, I think the study referred to those who maintain weight loss um, would have preoccupation with food yeah. and have to monitor their bodies yeah. for long term. So whether they would they would go through periods of monitoring, tracking food potentially, um, and you know would have to regularly weigh themselves mm -hmm. and would have to um, you know pay very close attention to everything they're eating, everything they're doing. Would sacrifice social plans. This was yeah. all in the research, um, put in very researchy language, but it was all there. And to me, that was describing my disordered relationship with food yeah. that I had, that I couldn't maintain because I had no life. And it became all-consuming, and it was something that um, meant that, yeah, I had a smaller body, but I did not have a life to go with it. You had it. a smaller life as well. I had a massively smaller life. Well, that's a contradiction itself, but I had a smaller <laughs> life. Significantly. Significantly smaller life. And um, that was really interesting to me that that was a... Was a like yeah we can do we can do long term weight loss providing you're willing to essentially be on a diet for the rest of your life. But pr providing you're willing to engage in disordered eating, if not eating disorder behaviors. Yeah, and that's sadly normalized. Very normalized in diet culture. Yeah, that's kind of. It's normalized in. That's what in I see every single day in mm -hmm. this very room. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, yeah, I was kind of, I was really frustrated with that, and I felt like it was important to bring that up because I think. When we do see often, I don't want to say point fingers at people because I don't. I'm thinking of hypothetical people in my mind, but when we're thinking of those people that perhaps we do know that did go on a diet, lose weight, um, we don't. Or you see those before and after pictures online. We yeah. do not know the mentality during that time. We do not know the the where that person was at. You know, after what it took yeah. to get that because. Um, we don't know the full story and, um, you know, as much as that before and after looks really attractive because it's like, oh wow, they did it, it looks so easy for them. Like, we, do know, we don't know the sacrifice they had to go through no, and get that. It's that whole kind of compare and despair thing and, and I say this to my clients all the time when they say, oh, so-and-so has done this and they've, you know, they've lost this weight and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'll say, well, we don't know if they have an exercise addiction. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they have an eating disorder. We don't know if they have an illness. We don't know what, you know, what else might be going on in their lives that, you know, it could be mm -hmm. a mental health thing. Like, there are so many reasons why people might have lost weight. But because in our society it's kind of blanketly praised, we don't actually stop and reflect, okay, what else might be going on here? Could this be a signal that, that something isn't quite right for this person? It was really interesting in my own personal experience when I lost a lot of weight through basically controlling everything I mm -hmm. ate and did. Um, it was a weird combination of some people thinking like, hang on, are you okay? But there was a lot of praise. Yeah. There was a lot of praise and there's a lot of thinking like, good on you. you, you just love healthy eating and you love cooking and um, oh, and I shared a lot of it on social media. So social media was like, hey, we'll validate that. Like the likes and the follows and everything at the time was very validating to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing was role modeling what I was following online, which yeah. is like this vicious cycle of, 
Um, you know, I wanted to be healthy. I saw healthy as um, controlling stuff and tracking stuff and, you know, um, engaging in behaviours that I now realise were disordered. But it was very normalised as that's just what fit and healthy people did and that there didn't seem to be another option. Um, when I, years later, through my own kind of, um, my own process of mm. unlearning and challenging myself and trying to get myself back to to a, a neutral, healthy relationship with, with food and exercise, I discovered Intuitive Eating and I discovered your work and um, it was so transformative for me personally and it was a piece of the puzzle that just made everything make sense. Mm -hmm. And it was what I, it was kind of a framework that put all my, um, all my confusion and all of my, almost like anger about what I had done and why I had done those things. It all made it all make sense and, and really kind of fast tracked my personal healing. And so I thought it would also be a great opportunity to talk about intuitive eating yeah. and discuss the principles and kind of work through them. In the book, we, um, I had a dietitian and she's a personal trainer, Jessie Haggerty, do um, run us through the um, the principles of intuitive eating, and we discussed um, what a normal relationship, quote normal mm -hmm. relationship with food looks like. Um, and that was just a little introduction. So I felt like this is an opportunity to kind of delve a perhaps a little bit deeper into that. Um, so. I know that you um, call the principles slightly different terminology, but I've gone. It's the same thing. I know they are. I've gone. I've gone by the uh, Evelyn Tribbley, Elise Resch um, uh, words, but I uh, thought we could run through them. So let's start with uh, reject the diet mentality. I know we've touched on that phrase, but what does that mean in the context of intuitive eating? Yeah. So there are kind of a couple of different layers to it, and I think. Parts of it is that sort of um, intellectual, rational understanding of why diets don't work and all the things I said before about, um, you know, the biology that's at play and the kind of working against our bodies and ultimately it causes problems for both our psychological and our physical health. So we know that um, people who diet are much more likely to develop an eating disorder. Um, we know that you know restriction can lead to like muscle wasting, for example, and loss of muscle mass. Um, yeah, there are tons of uh, kind of side effects, if you will, of, of dieting. So, so having I guess an intellectual understanding of that first of all, but then also being able to understand your own experiences of dieting and kind of um, what it was that you were hoping to get out of that versus the reality of that and, and maybe the the sacrifices or the price that you've paid for that personally. So kind of like you were talking about putting together that puzzle. It's about beginning to recognize that diet mentality, the bargaining and negotiating that, that we talked about and be, being able to, first of all, acknowledge that and have awareness that it's there and then begin to challenge it and undo it a little bit. Um, and then getting rid of dieting tools where possible and in a way that feels safe and comfortable for you. So oftentimes we use um, like my fitness pal or um, what's the oh like a Fitbit or something mm -hmm. like that. Fitness trackers. <laughs> what is that thing? <laughs> um, so yeah, using those things as as a way of kind of feeling like we're okay mm -hmm. um, as, as something external 
to us validating what we're doing and so we kind of almost need to, to learn how to build that internally knowing that we're okay so that's I mean all of the principles sounds like 10 principles yeah easy but then you like blow up each principle and there's a lot to yeah it. it's not like right step one do this step two do that it's very much okay my understanding is we start with rejecting the diet mentality and we really have to spend some time there probably because Look, if you've done, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, ten diets, that's a lot of stuff to, to kind of get your head around mm. and unpick. And, and so it's not necessarily an overnight process. No. Um, and it's going to vary depending on each person's experience. Totally. I always say that intuitive eating is an iterative process. You might kind of dabble with some of the principles and then be like, mm, and then go back to an earlier principle. And um, yeah, in fact, I see that happening time and time again in, in clinic, you know, we go so far and then we're like, actually it might be helpful to go back and revisit this earlier principle just to make sure it's really fully sunk in. So second principle is honor your hunger. Yeah. Um, discuss. Yeah, so I always like to do a little thought experiment here. So I want the listeners slash viewers which is creepy, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want I want you to think about have. I want you to think whether you have ever tried to ignore or pacify your hunger signals by drinking a diet coke or uh, having a cup of coffee or um, mine was sparkling water. Sparkling water. Mm -hmm. Or a cigarette, hmm. or going to bed early, or just flat ignoring it and hoping that it goes away. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> Everyone in the room is nodding their head. Yeah. <laughs> so that is not honoring your hunger. That is just ignoring it. And what that can do is it, it atrophies the signals in our bodies around hunger. So they become sort of weaker and less reliable over time. So literally the other day a client was saying, oh, if I just don't eat for a while, then eventually the hunger goes away. And I'm, I'm like, well, but do you know what's happening in your body when that happens? And she, she wasn't sure. And so I explained to her that, well, basically your, your body realizes that by sending out the, those signals, you're not responding to them or registering it. So it's just gonna cut them off. It's just gonna, to stop sending your body those signals. Um, and I don't know, I find that quite a, um, a, a, a sort of uncomfortable uh, realization that your body would just stop functioning the way that it, it's, an, it's meant to, that in a normal way. So honoring your hunger is about learning that your body's sending you a message for a reason um, and to learn to eat in accordance with those sort of gentle, signals for hunger rather than waiting until you get like the rumbling way past mm -hmm. hungry which um that sets you up to feel again out of control around food it might send if you're if you're vulnerable to it it might send you up for binging and i don't mean that in a oh i ate three cookies out of a packet kind of way i mean it in the sense of you ate three packets of biscuits and then maybe something else as well as that so in the real true sense of, of, of binging and binge eating disorder. So that's something else to consider. Um, so yeah, learning to tune into your early hunger signals, 
which um, essentially helps you build trust in your body. Yeah. And um, actually some research is showing that it can, it can support physical health as well. So it can help you manage blood glucose levels a bit better um, as a, as a for, for instance. So yeah, that's honoring your hunger. Should we, yeah, should we just, because I, I just have a few exa examples of my own and I think yeah. you have examples from clinic Tons. of idea of things that, that are hunger but we might not think they're hunger because yeah. it's not like an outrageous rumbling belly. Mine is I stop being able to form sentences and I, I just, like I literally just, I'm like a, a my batteries have died and I just have to, mm -hmm. I literally have to refuel to them. I've been doing a lot of writing recently and talking to people and I really noticed that when I'm hungry I don't think clearly at all yeah. and I might not in that moment think wow I'm hungry because I feel a little bit hungry right now but I don't I wouldn't necessarily feel that but I'm like hmm I'm not thinking straight and I'm a bit low energy um I need food mm -hmm. yes so oftentimes when I ask clients what does hunger feel like for you in your body they will just describe like this deep gnawing at the pit of their belly and I'm like whoa <laughs> that sounds like you're probably over hungry um, and and it's almost always just the the symptoms in their stomach that they're listening out for um, when what we talk about in clinic are the five ways that hunger can show up so it could be mood so getting hangry but also mm. really interestingly some of my clients experience um, anxiety when they're hungry interesting yeah so that's something else to to be aware of um, but any kind of dip in in your mood that might be a symptom um, so mood then head so could be concentration could be focus could be just kind of like a dull slight headache and mm -hmm. what I think a lot of people don't don't appreciate is that um, that if we let our blood sugar level get too low, it can trigger migraines. So that's something to kind of be aware of as well. If you're susceptible to migraines, making sure that you're checking in with these earlier symptoms of hunger rather than waiting until you're over hungry. So mood, head, energy levels. So if you're feeling just kind of weak and listless and blah, <laughs> and even, even if you have had a good night's sleep, um, then that could be a symptom of hunger or signal of hunger. Um, and then there are the physical symptoms, so stomach, but, but noticing those more nuanced signs around um, hunger, so like a gentle rumbling rather than like a full-blown... Yeah, that was, that was actually very good. <laughs> You've done this before. I just found a new talent. Um, and, and then the last one is physical, so feeling like you have low blood sugar, feeling kind of weak, um, all of those things could be signals of hunger. So it might take a little bit of experimenting to figure out exactly what hunger feels like for you. And of course, you know, for some people, one of those signals on its own might mean hunger. For other people, it might be kind of figuring out a combination of a few mm -hmm. of those. Um, so yeah, play around with it. But like in the intuitive eating book and in my book, we both go into a lot of detail about how you can figure figure that out. Yes, and one thing we did include in Train Happy was the hunger fullness scale. Yes. So people can start to identify where they're at on there. Yeah. Which is one thing I would say about that though, um, and this is something I have to always warn my clients about is that in that if you're not focused, if you're not um, 
I guess what I'm trying to say is focus on the hunger side of the equation first because without that without having that piece in place and then some of the other principles that we're just about to talk about that fullness side of the equation rarely falls into place if you still perceive the threat of future deprivation to be quite mm -hmm. high so if you're still restricting if you're still not allowing yourself to eat the foods that you really like and enjoy then we could see not you know people overshooting their fullness regularly on the other side of the equation very helpful very helpful so we've got the next one which is making peace with food i think this is my favorite one why is it your favorite one because i demonize so many things for a yeah. long time and so it's just really really nice to know that all foods fit and they have a place and i and to and to not have that guilt and shame yeah. around eating food that and is so, so how, liberating. What was that process like for you? Uh, it was a... So far, so prior to intuitive eating and just generally realising that I needed to get a better place with food, I really had to challenge a lot of rules I had. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like portion control around peanut butter. I only let myself have a certain amount. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, so I'd slowly just let myself have a little bit more and be like, oh, like, nothing happened. Or I'd... Um, not you know I'd have to I'm thinking like I'd make my breakfast in the morning and I used to like even if I wasn't weighing my food I would know the perfect portion that yeah. I felt was appropriate and I would just slightly overdo it in terms of like oh I'll just pour 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 oh there's a bit more and just try and see what that felt like mm -hmm. see what it felt like to not abide my own rules basically and just push the boundaries and um, put myself in positions which was mm -hmm. scary but put myself in positions where I'm going out for dinner or I'm particularly with my boyfriend's family, yeah, and know that I have no control over what food is about to be presented to me, and I have to eat it. And that was a, you know, I've been with him since the kind of depths of my disordered eating to now, and I'm probably a completely different person, but mm -hmm. noticing, I mean, we're still eating the same roast dinner that we've had for the last five and a half years, but my interaction with that roast dinner is completely different to what it was, you know, you know, five years ago to what it is now. Um, and yeah, just noticing my language around how I described mm -hmm. food, um, not saying things were good or bad, yeah. and um, recognizing that everything had its role. And you know, eating vegetables doesn't make me a better person than choosing to just eat like I don't know a plain pasta dish. Like right. those are both okay. And that was yeah, that's been huge. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that this is your favourite principle because for some people it's the, the hardest, I imagine. One, the it, hardest I, one. And I get that, but, but I feel like in a really fortunate position where it was scary a couple of years ago and now it's... But on the other side of it. On the other side, it's good. Yeah, it's worth, the, mm. it's worth persevering and pushing through if you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I talk as a sort of stepping stone on the way to making peace with food and giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. I talk about this concept of food neutrality. So noticing the language, like you said, that you use around food um, and, and kind of, instead of referring to things as healthy or unhealthy or good, or bad, or making these dichotomies around food, if you can just call food by its name. <laughs> so like, this is a snack or this is a dessert or this is um, a vegetable or this is, dairy or whatever it is that you're talking about 
um, that can be a really um, simple, accessible way of bringing food down off of a pedestal because um, I don't think we said this explicitly, but when we when we label foods in a certain way or, or treat the cer certain foods as though they're special somehow, that's when they hold more power over us and they feel like they're kind of like calling our name. So the forbidden fruit effect can mean that we end up eating way more of that food than is comfortable for us or we feel loads of guilt and shame mm. and have lots of negative self-judgment around it when we do eat it. I was talking to a friend recently um, and they said that they had a sugar addiction mm. and it was a really interesting chat because I, um, it, it, as you said, it was kind of that um, thing where they felt really bad for eating sugar mm -hmm. and they said, oh, because when I eat it, I can't stop. And um, it was really interesting to just kind of hear that experience because I think they labeled that food bad. Yeah. It felt like that if they weren't going to get it again, they just had to go for it in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I, do you think that's where that phrase has what has come up it's become a bit of a thing to to be a sugar addict yeah and and certainly um i feel for people who uh, relate to food in that way where it feels very much like a compulsion or an addiction and, and you feel like you can't stop um the first thing that i would say is if you if you do find yourself binging in the true sense of the word binging so not again not just eating three or four biscuits but three or four packets of biscuits, then um, seek out professional help because that could be a symptom of um, bulimia or, or binge eating disorders. So definitely look into that. Um, but but if you are, are more on the side of, oh, I just get a little bit excited and carried away with, um, I don't know, ice cream or chocolate or whatever it is, then sometimes, and I see this time and time again in clinic, the root of, of that sort of, in quotes, addiction is actually down to restricting it and not giving yourself permission to eat those foods. And so if you find yourself in that position, then I think intuitive eating can be a really helpful framework for you to work through um, this concept of, of food addiction, which um, we know is not supported by the scientific literature as so we don't actually have um, the capacity like our biologists and have the capacity to be addicted to sugar in the same way that you're addicted to heroin or cocaine mm -hmm. or something um, and, and oftentimes you'll read things in in the media where it's like sugar lights up your brain the same way that oh it's that but, drug that, that drug which I'm talking about, they'll say some drugs. Yeah, I've seen that, I've seen that. And, and I'm like, but your brain lights up in response to a lot of things that are, you know, like kittens or your favourite music mm. or your favourite people. Um, and, and so we need to be careful not to over-pathologise our brains lighting up because that's, again, a survival evolutionary mechanism. If we didn't get excited about, like, food and sex, we would just die off as a species. True, very true. So the next one is challenge the food police, which kind of links nicely. Yeah, yeah. These two I kind of feel like are just an extension of each other. So challenging the food police would, would be a lot to do with um, challenging the rhetoric that's, you know, out there about good and bad foods, for example, and 
um, challenging this idea that there is such a thing as a perfect diet because there isn't. Um, and what we know from a nutrition perspective is the, the most important things are sort of balance and variety over time rather than, you know, this one specific perfect food or meal that doesn't exist. So um, nice the foods. Yeah, no, that's just branding and mm. PR. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's it's not a magic cure-all. It has to be, like I said, over time. No, I mean, pizza is pretty super yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not going to cure any diseases. Um, so, yeah, I think kind of pushing back on all of the um, sort of quote-unquote advice that we get about nutrition and um, what's good for you and what's not, um, and being able to kind of come to your own conclusion about those things. Doesn't that feel um, like an odd thing to say as a nutritionist, to say don't listen to rules around food? <laughs> Yeah, I can see how that's weird. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm so used to saying it at this point um, that yeah, no, it, it it doesn't it doesn't seem weird, but I can see how that comes across as weird. Um, but I see so many people who have misconstrued what you know, and I'm I'm even hesitant to use the term good nutrition means because. Um, you know, it's it's usually so devoid of context and, and people don't really appreciate nuance with nutrition and there are no black and whites when it comes to nutrition. Everything is, you know, needs to be taken in, into context um, and it's, it's very individualized. So what kind of works for one person is not going to necessarily work for the next person. And I think that's what's so great about intuitive eating is that you can kind of take it and make it your own and it doesn't like intuitive eating for you is going to look different for intuitive eating for me absolutely and I think like you said there's certain principles that may speak to you yeah. at some points or that you may really feel like there were certain things for me that really clicked and other ones where that I don't know that that wasn't so it wasn't such a process yeah. to kind of to work with yeah some people I think just take to some of the principles really easily and then there are a few other ones that they just need to spend a little bit more time with so the next one is um, yeah. discover the satisfaction factor yeah um, I really love working with clients around this principle um, because it can be really fun and we can do some really practical things like I remember a client telling me once that um, they hadn't been to the supermarket shopping like they just done all their supermarket shops online for like two years and they just bought the same ingredients every single week to like make a smoothie or make you know mm. they, they basically eat the same thing which was very much informed by diet culture and their understanding of what a good diet is um and so her homework was to like go to a market i think i sent her to borough market and told her to like smell the cheese and yeah. like you know touch the like fresh produce and um like try some fresh baked bread and so discovering that's exactly what discovered the satisfaction factor is it's about rejecting what you think you should eat because diet culture tells you to and learning to eat the foods that are going to give you the most sort of bang for your buck when it comes to satisfaction um so yeah doing doing stuff like that and really learning what um 
what fills you up, what satisfies you, what makes you feel content. So it could be thinking through the textures and the flavors and the colors on your plate. Um, and sort of, I think it's really important to caveat this as well and say on the flip side of things, recognizing that not every meal is perfect. Not every meal can be perfect. Um, but you know, sometimes you just need to have like beans on toast with cheese and yes, something on right sometimes. But I know, I, I get it, yeah. like it's, a, it's delicious and it's comforting and sometimes that is really what you're craving mm -hmm. and, and what you're, you're after um, and, and other times that has to happen because of necessity, right? So um, yeah, that like I, I, I also when I'm working with this principle will integrate concepts around mindful eating as well. So really tuning into the different textures, temperatures, flavors, you know, do you like sweet, salty, mummy, all of those different things? Do and you can follow, have a lot of fun with it. Do you follow um, Tiffany Rowe online? And yeah, does, of course. Who doesn't follow I'm Tiffany Rowe? I'm obsessed with her. And her husband does this thing saying, like, what do you want to eat? They say, like, what do you want to eat? And he's like, I want sticky, sweet, yes. um, gooey. And then he, like, lists all these descriptive words. And then they try and make something that encompasses yeah. those things. And it's so fun. It just is yeah. like, it's like... This feels so playful and like they make it really just a fun thing to do and I, I think she calls it like the Mr. the T-Row method or something like that and we I love it I think it's so fun I mean and that's that's the thing like food should be fun it should not be a battleground it sh it's there to be enjoyed mm. um, and the more we enjoy our food the more likely we're, we are to have a healthy relationship with it um, side note my husband only like when he's hungry, he will just tell me what number he is on. The oh, really? Scale. I love that you've got him to that point. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm a seven. It's getting fat. Like no, seven. Yeah. I'm a three. I'm a two. You need to eat now. <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, I have. I need to do a bit of food shopping, and I and you know when you look at my cup, it's like, like this. Like I am not satisfied. Like I am not satisfied. I know. I, I know. I need more food, and I'm really frustrated that I haven't prepared myself enough to get to the shops to do stuff I've just had so much going on recently um and it's also realizing for me as well this satisfaction of things realizing when I'm not satisfied yeah. and making sure that um I do you know even if even if that what what to some would feel like an adequate meal doesn't satisfy yes. me like that's okay and like if I need more I need more and that's an individual need and sometimes, and I think this is what's so helpful about doing the work around discovering the satisfaction factor, is that sometimes it's not necessarily that you need a lot more food. It might be that you need, um, you, you might need to discover for what for you makes the difference between being full and being satisfied. Mm. Is that having something sweet at the end of your meal? Is that having something crunchy or you know different textures or whatever it might be but that's what that concept allows you to explore so that when you come to the next principle which is i believe <laughs> your fullness yes that's what i thought so it's, it's feeling your fullness if you haven't done all that earlier work around um you know making peace with food challenging the food police and doing this work around connecting with what fills you and satisfies you, then there's just no way that you're going to be able to regularly feel your fullness. So don't skip those steps. 
really sink into them because otherwise this other part of the equation I think just doesn't make sense. Do you feel like discover the satisfaction factor and feel your fullness interlink as well in the same way that um, the, the other ones did? I mean, yeah, I think Elise and Evelyn have just built such a beautiful model that it all kind of it flows, flows in, into each other. And that's not to say that you have to follow them perfectly in order, but I think there is a lot of sense to the way that they present them. So we have um, cope with your emotions with kindness, which I believe is the new yes. terminology for this principle. Yeah, um, I, I love that sort of reframing of it because I call it, when I'm working with clients, I talk about, I use the phrase understanding emotional eating because emotional eating gets such a bad rap it gets vilified so heavily when actually it's just a way that we have of looking after ourselves and coping with difficult feelings. Um, and I just want to point out that it's totally human and, um, you know, normal. <laughs> I'm so hesitating using that word, but it is. It's really normal to use food to pacify difficult feelings. and. Um, if we think about, you know, when babies are born and they're bawling their heads off, the first thing that we do is offer them a boob or a bottle, right? So mm -hmm. we give them something to eat. And then throughout life, food is intrinsically linked with emotion, whether that's, you know, joy and celebration or commiseration and I've just been dumped, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. the full spectrum of things, weddings, funerals, birthdays. Um, breakups, like there's there's always food there. So I think we really need to take the sting out of um, the concept of emotional eating um, and think about what function it has served from us and then come at understanding emotional eating from a much more compassionate place. Um, and then kind of tapping into, okay, what other coping skills are available to us? I often talk about our sort of emotional coping toolkit and sometimes food is the only thing in there. So if I were to go in and yank that out and take that away from you, then there's nothing left in there potentially. So what can we add to that rather than take away from that toolkit? And so, you know, we have a worksheet around emotional eating where we, we talk about different things that you can do to help um, basically self-soothe, like a sort of self-care checklist kind of thing. And I will encourage my clients to leave food on there as, you know, one or two of the options so that you know that, that that's not, you know, again, normal. Um, but you know what I mean? It, that's like, okay. that's ex yeah, that's an, an option for you as well as maybe, you know, whatever, whatever else is helpful for you, whether that's like, you know, lying on the floor and grounding yourself or, um, calling a friend or, um, you know, if you have going to therapy, if that's accessible to you, or journaling, um, journaling, like that. Mm. yeah, and and that's not to say that that some people may have um, have difficulties around food that that need that don't need professional help, but you know there are these kind of low level self soothing self care techniques that we can fill our coping toolkit with. I love that, and entering happy. I kind of reflected that with exercise and said yeah. how we often use exercise to cope and for some people for sure working out is their only way of coping with emotion mm -hmm. um and 
my therapist put it as uh, often we're kind of running away from dealing with that hard stuff because it's really, really hard to, to deal with. And so that is the way to kind of just, you know, deal with it in that moment. And as you said, um, it's about adding in rather than having just one crutch yeah. and giving yourself the option to, to, to you know, yeah. perhaps exercise or, you know, food has its place in soothing you, but can there be other ways as well? Yeah, and, and I think it's really important to mention that sometimes when we go through the work of intuitive eating and realise that food is not the problem, we've just been kind of putting a lot of stuff onto food, we have to learn new ways of looking after ourselves because sometimes all the shit can rise to the surface. Mm -hmm. That's not, I don't want to scare people off by saying that, but, but I think it is helpful to kind of have, have that heads up that you, you're probably going to have to find new ways of looking after yourself. Yeah, yeah. Speaking, speaking from personal experience, like that's 100% mine and also realising that um, at a time in my life, so early in my 20s when I'd had a you know, pretty traumatic event in my teens, I lost my dad and I was at drama school in a really uh, tumultuous environment that at times felt totally out of my control. Um, looking inwards at food and my body and everything was my way of coping. Yeah. And it was disordered, but it was a coping mechanism. And realizing that is, is hard and you get frustrated and you feel, you know, but I also think I was doing my best with what I had at the time. Oh, yeah. And it's got me to where I am now. And, you know, I'm really fortunate that I am in a position now where I can get access to other help and realize this stuff. But it is, it like, you know, we're, we're all just, we're all just trying to cope the best we know how. And, you know, whether it's exercise, whether it's food, that's what you've learned is, is the way to cope. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it is about getting to the deeper stuff and that's, that's the hardest job of all, I think. Yeah, it, it definitely is. But I think as you've sort of alluded to already and um, certainly, you know, one of the things that my clients say anecdotally to me is, is even though it's a hard process to go through, ultimately being able to, to connect with your life in a way that doesn't revolve around food and body preoccupation is a worthwhile place to get to. 150%. 150%. I would not be sat here having this conversation without going through that process because yeah. I didn't have the headspace for this conversation. Yeah. And that was huge. So when you spoke earlier about the brain, I was like, totally can relate. Totally can relate. <laughs> so let's move on to respect your body. Another great yeah. principle. Yeah. And another tricky one mm. that can be challenging for people, again, in the context of diet culture and um, just a, a, a pandemic of body shame and body hate that we sort of live in. Um, so the way that I frame this in, in my book is talking about the concept of body neutrality. So sometimes it's difficult for people to, to feel like they can go from totally hating their body to totally loving their body in like one foul swoop. So we talk about this stepping stone of body neutrality um, where you basically are learning to treat your body with respect 
irrespective of what you've eaten or how much you've exercised a particular way. So it could be really, really low-key things like um, you know, buying clothes that fit and don't dig or pinch into you, which sounds so obvious, but we're so reticent to 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 you know to give ourselves it's, to that. taking up that. It's just taking up more space. Yeah. And even if I'm just taking up space inside material, yeah, like that feels like scary. Yeah. That's like oh, this is an unknown thing. This this is new. Yeah. And it feels like I had my book launch last week and I, I bought a dress that's my usual size. It didn't fit, so I had to get the next size up. Um, but learning that that's, but that's a reflection of the culture that we live in, not, yeah. a, not a failing of your body. No, no. And for me, it was just a case of, you know, there's like that. I was talking to someone saying that that voice in your head goes from like, you know, it might be a 50% to a 40 to a 30 to a 20 yeah. to... Ten, yeah. and then there's still that maybe zero point five percent in your brain that goes, "Hang on a second, a bigger size," and you're like, "Hang," and then it's having that awareness of going, "Wait, I know that voice. I know what that is. Let's um, like, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay." Yeah. And just being kind to yourself for thinking that thought because those thoughts do crop up. I think mm. when it comes to your body, and maybe it's changes. Yeah. And um and. Giving yourself a lot of compassion, I think, has been also really important to say, like, I get why you feel that way, like, I get it, but you you know, like, you, 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 the I diet voice, like, it's hard to mute it totally. Yeah. It will get dimmed down Absolutely. and dimmed down and dimmed down. Absolutely. Um, but you can you can choose not to engage with yes. Um, And a couple of things that are, I think are important on the back of that. First of all, this idea that I talk to my clients about all the time, which is body image fluctuates and changes. So I think sometimes we can get this under this kind of misconception that um, being body positive is um, about reaching this like body nirvana place where you just love yourself all the time and you never have a bad body image day. And that's totally not what it is, but it's about being able to respond to those inevitable bad body image days with self-compassion, mm. right? That's essentially what it boils down to. And also understanding and learning about, and I think this is so critical and I'm willing to put money on the fact that Elise and Evelyn have, have written about this in the fourth edition of, of their book. And um, I know other people have too, and people can speak to it more, much more eloquently than I can, but is, is really including the are really learning about the true intentions behind body positivity, which go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It was a social justice movement designed for the inclusion of marginalized bodies, not just fat bodies, but I think all marginalized bodies, but especially fat bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so learning about the, the fat liberation roots of body positivity and um, if you can kind of tap into that from a social justice perspective, I think that's really critical in that body image healing piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we touched on that in Train Happy as well and, and spoke about, we had um, Anushka Reese who wrote Beyond Beautiful, which I think yeah. is such a lovely book in helping you kind of navigate how you feel about body image. And she talks about body neutrality in there. Yeah. And we talk about the differentiations and um, 
I, I hope that that gets people curious on how it fits into intuitive eating as well. It's all yeah. kind of, this, this is all interlinked stuff, interwoven stuff. So we also have um, movement, feel the difference. Um, and this is where... It's where you come in. This is where, yeah. You tell us what this is. Well, we've had it described as joyful movement, I think, yeah. um, quite commonly. And it absolutely is about finding fun and play in movement again. I think for many people who are going through intuitive eating, perhaps exercise has always been linked to dieting. Mm -hmm. So when they exercise, they restrict and, and vice versa. So I think it's once you've done the work of kind of unlearning that sense of restriction, I think, yeah. and, and you, you can start to bring movement back in. And I say get it back on your own terms and disconnect it from diet culture and realize that it can be about just feeling really good and a change to your body does not have to be uh, the uh, gauge for success. It doesn't have to be the measurement. Um, there doesn't have to be a measurement for success. It can just be about you in your body um, doing what feels good yes. and it doesn't have to be the exercise rules as prescribed by diet culture. It doesn't have to be in a gym, it can be in the park, it can be, I don't know, doing rock climbing or ice skating or horse riding or you can go anywhere and everywhere and, and move your body. And I like to use, so we, I've heard you speak about this as well because I think the phrase exercise has this connotation yeah, of repetitive movement that feels, for some punishment, punitive, yeah. Yeah, and, and whilst um, I think some people may relate to that it doesn't always have this connotation mm -hmm. to people I do think that movement is the even though on the front of the book it says intuitive exercise for everybody I wish it said intuitive movement for everybody I think because I yeah want, but you need to shift those books Tally yeah so. yeah <laughs> but I want people to um I want people to kind of get out the box yeah of, get out that think outside the box and and kind of do stuff they enjoy doing so um what, how do you see it playing out in clinic? How do you see this working well, I was, with people? I was actually just thinking about my own recent experience, if I may. Please. Um, but I am five months pregnant, and I've been having a lot of hip pain and difficulties, and I've been to see the women's physio. That was an interesting experience that I wasn't expecting. Um, um, anyone who's been pregnant will understand. Um, and... Um, I, like, I, I just wasn't able to, I haven't been able to find anything that really, like, was alleviating the pressure. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for a swim. Yeah. And I live pretty close to London Fields uh, Lido, which, is it Lido or Lido? I think it's Lido, but you can say Lido. 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 It's, either way, it feels awkward. But anyway... So it's um, an outdoor swimming pool and I've been going just like a couple of times a week and doing like I've just I've been giving myself permission to go in the super super slow lane with like all the over 65s and I've you know grabbed a hold of the like the paddle board like the floaty mm -hmm. what's the what's the float the float I'm just kicking my legs about and yeah it's 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 brought so much relief for my hips mm. um but like you know had that been i don't know like how back in the day i would have felt so self-conscious about going into a swimming pool and like getting half undressed yeah. and 
and all of that kind of stuff and here's me with my like belly out and <laughs> just jumping in the pool so um, yeah that's been that's been a really nice way to reconnect with my body as it's going through some very weird changes at the moment I'm a big I started swimming as well I've been doing proper swimming lessons so I can oh, swim check you out. because I literally I started oh, now you're just sure no I've had like six <laughs> lessons and this has become my new thing I really enjoy doing it because it's very mindful for me mm. this is my joy and exercise because I can't look at my phone I say I can't look at my phone yeah no one talks to yeah. me I don't have to talk to anyone else I just have to focus on my breathing and I'm just kind of it's, it's like a it's like a little challenge and I'm I feel really accomplished for learning a new skill um before my 30th birthday I feel really good about that I'm like I did that and recently I managed to do two lengths in a row without dying so that wow. was really great I, I that's a that's a progression from doing unlocked. one length yeah <laughs> but it, for me that feels so fun because as a personal trainer and someone who's worked in the yeah. gym for a long time and trained in a very specific way for a long time Letting myself do something that is just about learning a new skill and is not with the intention of like getting mega fit or yeah. you know having to get this new PB. It's about small, slow progressions and learning a new technique has been really um, and also, challenging and, and fun. And also just like kind of on that, it's been really interesting for me to see as well like, oh, I'm doing this exercise movement that I hadn't been doing before and... And having the intuitive eating skills to be able to be like, actually, I've just done that workout and I feel wiped and I need to go and eat, like, mm. a, like I need an extra snack mm -hmm. to help with the fact that I've just, you know, burned off all of that energy. So, it, you know, it's less about um, the compensation piece that we were talking about before and more about, okay, how can I adequately nourish my body for this movement that I'm doing. Yes, definitely. Um, because, you know, you want to have the best energy you can to do something that you really enjoy. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, talking about that self-care toolbox earlier, you know, exercise can be, movement can be a beautiful tool of self-care. When you're coming at it with the respect and when you're coming at it with that mindset, mm -hmm. it's a mindset shift that's really hard, but when it is that, um, it's it's all about making sure that you know you're not doing it on like a body that's lacking loads of sleep and you're adequately fueled and all this kind of stuff and that that surrounds that that self-care that use of exercise and self-care yeah yeah for sure so let's finish with the last one which is uh gentle nutrition um honoring your body with gentle nutrition mm -hmm. um because i think the common misconception with intuitive eating is that um it disregards any form of nutrition and it's just eat what you want, when you want, how you want. The very sceptical, I think, view of intuitive eating is like you just yeah. eat what you want and that's it. But that obviously is a nutrition element involved. Well, and I would argue that it's all nutrition. Yeah. Like learning to recognize your body's hunger signals, um, learning to eat the foods that satisfy you and fuel you and, and make you feel well, that's all nutrition. So, you know, if we are only thinking of nutrition in terms of this food will make you healthy, this food will make you unhealthy, which is a false dichotomy anyway, then that just, to me, that is showing us how narrow we perceive, you know, our perceptions of nutrition are, and we need to kind of widen that out a lot more. I would also say we need to widen our um, definition and understanding of health 
and what that means and what that looks like and um, you know recognize that that's different for different people um, and our ability to achieve health will de depend on loads and loads of var variables and, and it's not a, a moral obligation right there mm -hmm. yeah we could I'll, I'll rein myself another, in on another that episode. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but but the, the crux of gentle nutrition kind of comes back to um, how we can support our health, if that's what we're going for, um, through a sort of more a gentler approach to nutrition. So one that isn't all or nothing, black or white, you know, based on cutting things out and losing weight and restricting yourself. Instead, it's based on what you might add into your diet or what you might, um, you know, kind of achieving balance and variety over time rather than kind of micromanaging every single meal that you eat to be mm -hmm. kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, and, and gentle nutrition and honoring your health are also weight inclusive and kind of in incorporate some of these elements of health at every size so I'm helping support people's health regardless of the size of their body um, and you know the bodies might change throughout the process of doing intuitive eating weight can go up it might go down it might stay the same but regardless we are kind of focused on um, improving health outcomes and and not even like hard measurable outcomes but just how people feel mm. in themselves so it might be more of a subjective feeling and it's worth saying at this point though even though we're saying how you feel but it is worth saying that I believe there are if not almost over a hundred studies on intuitive eating in practice mm -hmm. um, and it is now uh, like an evidence-based um, what's the word on the framework thing? framework yeah. um, that people use and that it is shown to have um, positive benefits to people's, like you said, their overall health outcomes. Yeah, and, and not just physical health outcomes, but there's a lot of evidence. I think that the strongest evidence that I've seen is more around psychological well-being mm. and health, and we certainly need more studies um, and longer-term studies in randomized controlled trials around intuitive eating, but the, the sort of preliminary evidence base that we have so far is um, really promising and we have to remember as well that Evelyn and Elise developed the model from the, ev the, the existing evidence base what went way back mm -hmm. when in like 1995 um, but it is it's so cool to see some of the the research that has evolved around um, the, the actual the, the current framework as it stands. It is, and it's lovely to see. Um, Evelyn is quite big on social media, so you she's must huge, give her yeah. a follow. She's one of my favourite people to follow. She just has the most positive energy. She's just ha she's so generous with her energy as well, and so ex still so excited. Twenty five years later, to be talking about this, and still has so much to say. She's so excited. And it's just, it's just lovely to see. I really aspire to have the same energy about fitness in like 25 years time. I, I aspire to have that energy now. now. <laughs> I need yeah. a nap after um, Yeah, she, she, she's fantastic. Um, and going back to a point about gentle nutrition, I just wanted to talk a few, maybe a few examples in application um, in terms of, you know, in my mind I see gentle nutrition as thinking, oh, I need a snack. 
I know I, I tend to go to work in the evenings and then come home. Yeah. So thinking, oh, what's going to keep me full and energised and focused? Mm-hmm. And so whilst thinking, what's going to satisfy me? What do I like? Yeah. What foods do I have in my cupboard? Um, making a decision that thinking, okay, well, I know that that has, this will give me a, ra- a, a balanced meal of proteins, carbs and fats that will keep me going. Yes. That will, um, so I always think, and I've heard you say this before, and I notice I have them in my cupboard, hummus and oat cakes. Yeah. A really great one, just to keep you going. I was like, I know this is gonna, this is going to tar- like keep me going. I can come home and make dinner. And again, just drawing on my own recent experiences, another example of of gentle nutrition for me was um, in my first trimester when I could not stomach anything that was not a white carb. Mm. <laughs> um, being being kind with myself and and sort of recognizing okay um you know white white carbohydrate or white flour in this country is fortified with calcium and and um iron and niacin and and, and um thiamine b1 it's a little test of my nutrition knowledge there <laughs> um and and actually you know it's gonna it is it's not devoid of nutrition as we often think about in relation to um to white carbohydrates, um, I went through like a real crumpet phase for a while. I love a but you know, I was adding my toppings to, to make it as balanced as as I could with you know under the circumstances, which were that I mostly wanted to pick my guts up. And and it was so interesting for me actually that one day, kind of after eating a lot of crumpets for a while, I was like, I really want a green curry with loads of veggies in it, and it was you know, just, it was, it was quite interesting for me to sort of almost experience something that maybe clients go through quite a yeah. lot when they're going through the intuitive eating process. I still had it with white rice, but <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of, you know, my, I could really tell that my body was asking or kind of telling me actually, okay, now it's time to, we need to get back on those veggies. Yeah. So it does happen. And it's really interesting that like, all of these needs that we'll have, like nutritional needs that our body is telling us will evolve and change as we go through different stages of life and like whether that is, you know, through pregnancy or whether that is, um, I mean, even going into things like menopause or something like that. Yeah. I just think that all these things, you know, our body will kind of, it wants to work with us if you yes. let it and if yeah. you trust it. And I think exactly. that's the most important thing. So I think I've got like two tiny little questions. I'm Shoot. just conscious of your time. But perhaps this is a big question, perhaps this is a small question. Um, I'll let you decide. Do you think intuitive eating is for everyone? That's a big question. It is a big question. It is a big question. Um, yes and no. So, for instance, um, I work a lot with eating disorders and I'm actually currently involved in a project um, where we are integrating intuitive eating principles into an NHS service towards the later stages of eating disorder recovery. Um, um, but I would not say that f- f- the full expression of intuitive eating is not appropriate in the early stages of, of, of eating disorder recovery. I will caveat that by saying you can beginning to teach people about rejecting the diet mentality and challenging the food police and all of these things are really 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 helpful but when our sort of hunger and fullness meters are off 
then that might not be appropriate. Mm -hmm. So if you are, um, if you're in recovery from an eating disorder, you can use intuitive eating, but it, you, it really requires some additional support if, if you can um, access that. Um, let's see. Would that also apply to others who are, I don't know, working with a dietitian medically through man mm. managing so, various conditions? I suppose it depends yeah. on the condition and depends. It really depends on the condition. So one of the things that we're working on here at LCIE at the moment is developing a set of um, practice guidelines for clinicians, so dietitians, nutritionists, doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals. We're, so basically we're taking um, evidence-based guidelines and kind of filtering them through this non-diet um, intuitive eating lens um, and then you know training professionals around it and we've developed these really beautiful resources. I wish I had one handy to show you. These great resources which we are ultimately going to um, be selling um, to the general public so that they can take them to their healthcare provider Amazing. and say, okay, I have NAFLD, I have PCOS, I have um, uh, IBS, the various other conditions that I, um, I, I want to treat through a, a weight inclusive intuitive eating informed lens. So um, those are kind of, we've got a couple out. I think by the time that this podcast comes out, we'll have the PCOS one out as well. So I can give you the links to those. Um, and yeah, we're kind of on a mission to help educate other professionals so that they, you know, don't dismiss their clients and, and be like, well, no, you, you have um, insulin resistance, you have to go on a low carb diet. That's not the case. And if anyone tells you that, then you should challenge them slash come see us. Um, but yeah, so we want to educate clients, uh, sorry, we want to educate clinicians, but we also want to empower people to look after their health through um, this weight inclusive lens. That said, if you are being, um, let's say, fed with a nasogastric tube or um, a PEG or, or something else where you're, you're accessing your nutrition artificially, then probably intuitive eating is not going to be appropriate because you have um, really complex medical needs. So something like that, that's not going to be appropriate. Um, trying to think of any other, other things. I, I would always say as well that if you if you're working with a with a an experienced professional who who understands these principles really well, they can help you adapt them, um, and and certainly you know everyone can can could probably benefit from ditching the diet mentality mm -hmm. and learning about their hunger cues if those are available to them, um, and um, you know learning about body respect and these other things. So. Again, it's about maybe adapting the model and taking the bits and pieces from it that you might need. Tailoring it to the individual. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, intuitive eating, because it is gaining popularity, is starting mm. to get a bit co-opted by diet culture mm. and is becoming the hungerfulness diet. And people like, um, my understanding is that when we put, that we measure success with intuitive eating with the outcome being weight loss, that's when it starts to slip into that diet territory. So Correct. how do we... How do we just have like a bit of awareness as to when it's a diet and when it's true and true eating? Yeah, I think if it yeah if it's attached to the promise of weight loss, 
that's a big red flag for me. If it is, um, you know, something like intermittent fasting and intuitive eating or macro counting and intuitive eating, red flag, red flag, red flag, runway. Mm -hmm. um, those are, that's not, that's not intuitive eating. If there are kind of um, restrictions on what, when, or how much you can eat, that to me signifies that it's a diet as opposed to intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would be my kind of like quick distillation. Do you have anything else you would? Well, I thought I was in eating. In, I thought I was eating intuitively for a long time because my understanding was. Um, and the terminology was used in the fitness space that if you weren't actively tracking food, so if you weren't actively tracking macros or calories in my fitness pal, you were eating intuitively, and that's a common phrase that was kind of described uh, to okay, just okay, okay. But so even in that mindset, even if you're not actively, so for a very long time, I didn't actively track food, but I had very much had rigid diet rules around what I could and couldn't eat. So whilst I would say, yes, I'm eating intuitively because I wasn't following a plan and I wasn't tracking and I didn't have calorie goals, I still was implementing diet rules yeah. and I was still coming from the diet, in the diet mentality with the yeah. way I ate food. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think that's really common. It's really common and, and I can totally understand why, especially in the fitness space where the messages around intuitive eating are so misconstrued and it's kind of a mess in there, but um, <laughs> sorry. <Yep. laughs> I mean, we have our own stuff to clean up in, in the nutrition world as well, but um, yeah, I, there's a, a, a sort of an assumption that if you're no longer diet, dieting, then you're, in, you're eating intuitively. And a lot of people forget that there's a framework, there's a process that you work through. Yes, the the, the theory is that we, we're bought, um, bought, born with this innate ability to eat intuitively, and, and, and most of us are, um, but that gets eroded over time. So we actually have to work, it gets eroded over time through, you know, diets and diet culture, and, and even like well-intentioned, but ultimately unhelpful things that our parents say to us when when we're kids, you know, like teach finish you, your plate, finish break your plate, it up on the table. That was one of my yeah. Hosts. Eat your vegetables, or you can't go to the cinema, mm -hmm. or whatever it, it might be. Um, so there's we're taught from a very young age that there's this kind of like bargaining that goes on around food, um, or it gets used as a treat or a reward, and so it, it can get complicated from a very young age. Um, and then you've got all the, the stuff with diet culture and um, just messages around um, uh, the thin ideal and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, by the time that you stop dieting, you've still got all of this stuff that you need to kind of unlearn and, mm. and sift through and unpack. And that's where the intuitive eating framework can help you get back to a place. You know, I always joke with my clients that my job is to make myself redundant, right? Yeah. Like I'm trying to teach them all the tools and skills that they will need so that they don't need to come and see a nutritionist anymore, mm. right? And that's, you know, what any good intuitive eating program should be aiming for. Yes, it's giving you food freedom. Exactly. Laura, this has been a wonderful conversation. I felt like we covered so much. I do, but I feel brilliant. like we could still... Oh, there's so, there's much, so much more about. that we didn't say. There's so much more to talk about. These um, camera guys need a seat. I know, bless them. <laughs> the whole time. And a beer. <laughs>
Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you and where can they find your book, Just Eat It? I mean, I basically live here. I'm hardly yeah. away from this place. Um, so I'm director of the London Centre for Intuitive Eating and uh, my team and I see people for nutrition counselling. Um, our website is londoncentreforintuitiveeating.co.uk. Um, my podcast, which is sadly neglected at the moment, is Don't Salt My Game, but there's like a hundred plus episodes you can listen to um and you'll find me ranting about something um on instagram at laura thomas phd wonderful thank you so much for joining us today thank and, you uh, and congratulations on your book it's so beautiful and i know it's gonna help so many people so yeah thank you for everyone listening and we will see you next time goodbye Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.